Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There are some questions about humanity that never have one specific answer. What is love? What is success? And of course, what is art? If you ask a hundred different people, you're going to get a hundred different answers because they are questions that relate to our personal views. And that is based on our experience. Now, what if I ask you, what is morality? The answer should be easy. It's the difference between right and wrong. But is it really that simple? This week, we're going to spend the entire episode learning how morality is developed in our kids. We're going to speak with one of the world's experts on the topic and find out why those terrible twos and teenage rebel phases might actually be a good thing. Morally speaking, of course. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out how we can bring up moral kids using educational programs that rely on listening as much as teaching. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to lift your morale by exploring how we become moral. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Of all the complexities of humanity, morality is probably one of the most perplexing. You might think it doesn't develop until we are adults. But as you're about to find out, the origins of our moral selves occur much earlier in life. Perhaps even more fascinating, morality might be a part of our instinctual makeup, although it can be altered through nurturing. Our guide for this week is Melanie Killen. She is a professor of human development and quantitative methodology and the associate director for the Center for Children, Relationships and Culture at the University of Maryland. She has been studying morality in children for decades and has published numerous scientific articles. She's also written books, been on expert panels, and played a significant role in an Emmy Award-winning special, Kids on Race, The Hidden Picture, with CNN's Anderson Cooper. At its most basic level, what is morality? Morality, as we define it, and there are many different ways to define it, but the way we define it is pretty broad with a lot of agreement, is it has to do with prescriptive norms of how we ought to treat one another and particularly with respect to justice, others' welfare, and fairness. What about the neuroscience then behind that? We constantly talk about the social perspective, and then we try and link it up to the biological. Has this been done? Yes, but I would add something to that. I would say there's the social part of morality, which is how we interact with one another, but there's also the cognitive part of it, like how we think about it, what are our judgments, what decisions are we making about when we're going to act uh, towards others in a certain way. We're in a situation and somebody wants to divide up resources, but they're giving all the resources to the girls, not the boys. What do we say? Do we say, wait, that's unfair, or that is fair, or why, or do we want to find out more? 
And there's many situations like that where we are making decisions about it. So I would say it's social, it's cognitive, it's social cognitive, and then there's the neuroscience, the neuro underpinning of these both judgments and decision making. So the neuroscience of it is mostly about judgments and decision making, and that is what we call the social cognition of morality, how we think about it. And that's very much an emerging field. Um, it's a fascinating field. I've published some you know, work on it with my colleagues. My colleagues are the experts in neuroscience and I'm the expert in how we look at morality in childhood. But we have found that, for example, different parts of the brain are activated depending on the type of decision you're making. You know, If you're making a decision about, say, fair allocation of resources, that is what's fair when we're dividing up resources as opposed to the equity of it, like when we would say that it's okay to give some more to somebody who works harder than someone else. And so there's just all these different kinds of judgments that young children are capable of making. And so the research that I've been involved with is what we call sort of a developmental neuroscience. So it's how does the brain change in the way over time from childhood to adulthood in making these kind of decisions and what kind of part of the brain is activated? So that's there are other areas of moral neuroscience that are also emerging, but as I mentioned, it's a, a new field where their own assessments are also continually being updated and, and revised and changed, but it's very interesting. When does morality start to develop in a child? Well, that's an excellent question, and it's not an obvious answer. Sometimes people say to me, you know, what, what, what age does it start? And they want to hear me say two and a half. Two and a half years of age, morality starts. But it's really not like that because it is a lifelong process. It's an evolution. And so there's actually some fascinating research on how infants um, make visual, have visual discriminations and actually will prefer to look at somebody who's helping someone else in terms of when they're looking at an image on a screen, for example. So infants actually prefer to watch a helper rather than someone who's a hinderer. Now, is that morality? No, that's not morality yet. But is it the precursors of it? Is it the beginning of it where you would actually prefer to look at somebody who's helping someone else and somebody who's hindering um, someone else? Yeah, it probably is. It's probably the beginning of differentiation. Um, in terms of moral judgment, which is really my primary focus and the research we've done over the many years, we would say that probably it's around, you know, two, two and a half when kids are actually starting to make judgments and decisions and they have verbal capacities, you know, to, to talk a little bit about what they're thinking about. And that's when we see kids first start to say things like, that's not fair or I don't like that, it's, it's bad or it's wrong, or how someone's doing something to someone else. So does that mean for all parents out there that maybe the terrible twos are a good thing because they're sort of developing their own sense of morality? Thank you, yes. <laughs> I'm very much opposed to the terrible twos phrase. It's, a, I think, a stereotype that doesn't do justice if I use the word, to the capacities, the social and social cognitive capacities of young children of two-year-olds. There's the emerging conflict of autonomy and morality. That's a very fundamental human conflict. You want to do something for yourself, but you also want others to do something for other people, but sometimes there's a conflict there. And we actually call it autonomy and morality. It, in early philosophy, it was sort of phrased as selfish. You're either selfish or you're good. You know, you either want to do something for yourself or something for others. But a lot of times doing something for yourself is not selfish. 
it's autonomy. If I have a goal in my life and I want to be an opera singer, that's my autonomy to be what I want to be, but that's not necessarily selfish because the act of being an opera singer could be contributing to society and making us a more culturally rich you know, culture and society. And same with the two-year-olds. Oftentimes they are wanting to do something that is important. We want two-year-olds to start wanting to dress themselves and feed themselves and go get a toy they want, right? We don't want them to just sit there and wait for us to do that for them. So autonomy is a very important, fundamental, and necessary part of development. It will conflict sometimes with, of course, recognizing other people get a turn and they have to... um, uh, you know, in terms of turn-taking or sharing or suppressing your impulses. You're talking about autonomy at two years of age. We tend to associate that with teenagers, thus the rebel phase. Is that just another type of figuring out one's own morality? But now you've had all these years where you've had certain types of moral teachings, whether it be from ideology, religion, schooling, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're trying to find your own concept of morality in the process. I think that that is part of it. I would qualify one thing you said, because you said throughout the years, say from the twos to adolescence, we had this teaching from schools and teachers and parents, and you referred all to sort of the authorities of society. And a very fundamental, important part of moral acquisition and change is peer relationships, peers, interacting with those who are equal to you. Peer interaction is important. But then your question about is what we see in adolescents similar to what we see in two-year-olds. Yes, there are some parallels, again, in both cases, because autonomy is coming out. But also, I think the other part of it, which we think is actually a good part of morality, which is challenging authority and challenging norms of the culture. Now, you might think, like you're saying, you know, the rebel, the teenager, but rebels sometimes are important, right? Because the reason why is there are times where authority are doing things that are wrong from moral viewpoint. Individuals need to know how to challenge that and at times say, wait, that's unfair. And to do that means that you have to have your own set of moral principles that you have developed that are about how we ought to treat others, you know, with fairness, with justice, with equality. Because it can't come strictly from authority. If it did, then we wouldn't be able to challenge authority when they're doing something that's unfair. So adolescents are challenging not just sort of parents, right, but they're challenging the norms of the culture in terms of dress, and they're challenging, you know, all those all those kinds of things. And um, but uh, one thing we know a lot by adolescent parent conflict is that um, those conflicts aren't always about the big issues like um, harm to others. There's actually a lot of agreement between adolescents and parents. Those conflicts are about cleaning your bedroom, and which might seem trivial, but in fact, it's a tough. A, uh, struggle of this is my bedroom and I can keep it the way I want and the parent thinking no this is part of the house and if you leave it that way you know we're going to get you know bugs coming in it's an interesting contrast but in both cases we would say there are some aspects of this conflict that are very 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 important for the progress of understanding morality you've pretty much described science over the last 450 years <laughs> and it just seems to me uh-huh. that science in itself has been this antagonist to the abuse or, or perhaps misuse of morality. But when you th- start thinking about right. it from an individual perspective, does that then mean that perhaps morality can be used in a way to nurture as opposed to just help the person develop their own nature? 
Yes, that's very true. That's very true. I agree. And also, I think your analogy to science is very apt and really quite interesting because that is the case. And actually, you know, because sometimes people will say, well, are you studying religion? And I'll say, no, where's, you know, it's sort of secular humanism. I mean, I'm a scientist. I'm a research scientist. I'm studying the evolution and development of moral understanding, social cognition, moral cognition. We have theories about it, but we are testing our theories. We are looking to see if they're confirmed or disconfirmed. We are collecting tons of lots of quantitative data on this. I do big samples. You know, my research involves interviewing, you know, 300 kids, 400 kids at different ages. We're running lots of statistics, but then we're also looking at the reasoning, which we have a system methodology for doing that. So it's the science of morality. How does morality emerge? Just the way you might look at um, how do children understand mathematics and their number concept, or how do children understand how astronomy works? And whatever it is, you could do that scientifically, and that's what we're doing in the area of morality. Um, so, you know, religion is something else, you know, and religions have their moral codes and they have other kinds of codes, but we are looking at something more specific in that sense. And I think in terms of the way you're talking about the history of science, I think there's been that tension there as well. So I think that's a really interesting analogy I hadn't quite thought of before, but I would agree with that analogy. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's an old saying that no one person is an island. We are surrounded by our peers and whether we like it or not, they influence us in our actions. They may even steer us on paths we may not have chosen by ourselves. The same exists for our morality. It is personal, but it can be shifted as a result of our interactions with others. Sometimes these experiences come in the form of friendship and the development of cliques. But we also learn morality through negative experiences such as conflict, argument, and sadly, social exclusion, which can leave a person alone in a very crowded world. Melanie Killen has been exploring the ways that our interactions with others build morality and how there is no easy way to become a moral person. We have to go through the good and the bad in order to know the right from the wrong. How do social exchanges with our peers help to develop the morality like you were talking about earlier? Well, you know, it's interesting because for some people it's counterintuitive. When you ask people where does morality come from, often people will say, well, parents teach it. And then we come back with saying, well, actually, children learn a lot from their peers. And that's necessary because, as I was saying earlier, Parents have an influence, but they're one source of influence, and peers are another source of influence, and of course there's the media, and so there are many sources of influence on child development, how children understand morality. 
Children are active agents of their own knowledge. They're not just passive sponges that would just absorb anything uncritically. They're always critical. They're always thinking and reasoning. You know, humans are reasoning, thinking beings, and children are that too. <laughs> um, and so they're 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 critical. And so. Um, their peer interaction is very important because when you have conflict with a peer, you can work on a resolution where there's going to, you're coming, you have an equal status, an equal status in that resolution. So one child's in a room and they go over and they want that toy and the other child comes over and they want that toy too and they're both holding on to this toy and they're looking at each other and they have a conflict and they have to figure out how are they going to resolve it and they can do it in a number of ways. So sometimes children just use a threat, you know, well, I'm going to hit you. Or sometimes they might use bargaining. If you give me that, I'll give you this other one. Or they might use negotiation or they might use, you know, there's many different ways. And we call them constructive ways or like negotiating, bargaining. And then non-constructive ways are threats and, and retaliation and so forth. And so what you find is as children start using more and more negotiating, compromising, bargaining, they also start using more and more reasoning. So they'll say, well, look, you know, if I give you this block and you give me that red toy, then that's fair because we each got one or we each have one. They start using the language of morality when they are bargaining and negotiating. And children <laughs> who are starting to threat, use threats and bribes and so forth, they're not using language of morality. They're talking retaliation or dominance, things like that. And what we find is that children who are using the moral language of it's fair or it's unfair, wait, and they explain it, you know, look, I know you have it today and I'll get it tomorrow or you have it for two minutes. And I'm talking about object disputes, you know, which is a very big source of conflict in childhood. So you find that those kind of conflicts are resolved more quickly. Children are friends. They have more positive interactions. There's less stress. I mean, there's just a whole number of positive outcomes. However, those conflicts that are about threats and retaliation, those escalate. And then they escalate and then kids aren't friends and then there's higher stress and there's higher anxiety and there's lots of negative outcomes to those. So this whole process is all happening really, you know, between the ages of two and four at a very high rate. It's a very intensive level of period of development where kids are engaged in a lot of these kind of conflicts and disputes and over and over and over again. But what they're doing is they're constructing morality throughout that. The other thing that I find with students growing up is that they always seem to form these cliques. Are there moral groups that form as a child is developing? And does that help them to evolve their own sense of morality? I'd probably frame it a little differently. But yes, there's something like that going on. I wouldn't call it a moral group per se. I would call it sort of a a moral understanding, a moral knowledge that permeates. And it permeates your different groups. But Certainly, it's the case that within a lot of these cliques, and as you said, you know, that um, cliques and crowds and all that, that sort of, it actually peaks around age 13, 14. People often think it peaks in high school, but cliques and crowds that are tightly knit are peak in about 13, 14 years, and they actually start to sort of disperse. People get involved in romantic relationships and, and their academics or sports or other activities. So you have these different groups. And these different groups all have their norms and codes, and, and there's a lot of intensity about them, right? There's like a sense of loyalty to the group, and if you wear your T-shirt differently, you're disloyal to your group. And there's these group dynamics that get set in place that are very powerful on kids. And we've looked at this very closely because actually what we find is that those cliques and crowds are often, unfortunately, obstacles 
to the application or, or your moral principles and your fairness because there's this intensive loyalty sort of above all else. And so what you find, though, is that the kids and the students who are bringing their moral codes to it and actually brave enough to challenge their groups at times actually help groups to get along better when they say, hey, um, like a group can be very exclusive. You know, they don't want somebody to come into their group. And somebody says, well, hey, I think maybe we should include her. You know, I mean, she might be really good at, say, baseball, if that's what it is, or or if it's a music group. Maybe we should include him. He's, he's you know, from a different country, but they have, like different music. But, you know, why don't we include that person? Because then we'll, our music will be even that more interesting. And by the way, you know what I've discovered? is that the groups, the cliques and the crowds, like the jocks and the nerds and the preppies and all that, it's very American. When I've been in other countries doing my research, I collaborate with people in many different countries, this phenomenon is actually quite American-specific. You don't have quite these same kinds of cliques and crowds in other countries. It's just sort of interesting. I've sort of discovered this. They, they still have sort of group loyalty issues and group identity, but it's really defined differently. Group identity is really important. It's fundamental to human nature. We need to affiliate with groups. Group affiliation is important in many, many ways, and in childhood it helps to buffer against victimization. But the downside is that group identity also can create group dynamics like the in-group and the out-group, which can lead to prejudice. I was just about to ask you that because we have the stereotypes of certain group identities in high school turning into certain types of people as adults. Is that happening as well with morality? Can you become part of this group identity and it changes or evolves your morality and you continue to take that into later life? Generally, what we tend to see early is that children and adolescents, they do differentiate group identity and morality. Because if you don't differentiate them, that means you think that your group identity and your group defines what morality is. Our data and our research shows that most people in most countries and most children in most countries that we look at do have this understanding that there are certain principles that we apply to everyone. Don't harm somebody or to, to share, be fair, share resources. That, And it's not just sharing resources with my own group. And it's not just not harming my own group. It's like you shouldn't harm anybody. You shouldn't harm anybody in terms of this notion of you know, mutuality, mutual respect. There's a universality to that morality in terms of I think there are some things that apply to everybody, but I also think there are some things that are very culturally specific and specific to my group. So there's many conventions, customs, rituals that most people and children think are culturally specific. That's fine. They can do it that way. We do it this way. That's okay. But morality, it's not like well, we shouldn't, you know, is it all right to harm, to hit children at this school? No, you shouldn't hit children. They get hurt. They're sad. What about there's another school down the street, and there they say it's okay if you hit somebody. Is that all right or not all right? And young kids will say, oh, that's not all right. They'll still get bruised. They'll still feel unhappy. You know, so we have ways of trying to assess whether kids will generalize a certain principle or norm or whether they keep it view it as culturally specific or group specific. And they make that distinction very early in life, two and a half, three years of age. It's SAS class time. And today we're going to find out how we can build moral students in our schools. After decades of research, Melanie Killen has developed educational programs that she is now testing in clinical trials. As you're about to hear, one of the most fascinating aspects of this work is that instead of telling students what to do like normal classes, 
The most important part of these exercises is listening to the children. As they speak, we learn about how they are developing a personal sense of right and wrong. And that is awesome. What has led you to bring morality into the classroom? We want to bring morality into the classroom, which and it's already there, but we want to bring it in in such a way that it's a concentration of focus between children and teachers. Because one of the issues about morality is while we know young children have concepts of fairness and justice, we also know that they have these notions of group identity that set prejudicial biases in place. Based on the 30 years of research that my group has done on thinking about, you know, on on studying how kids think about morality, prejudice, we developed a new program called Developing Inclusive Youth. And Developing Inclusive Youth combines a web-based curriculum tool we developed for the classroom with the classroom discussion led by a teacher. And this program happens, you know, once a week over eight weeks, but the general idea of it to provide children a way of thinking about their own peer interactions. So the Developing Inclusive Youth, the web-based curriculum tool involves kids going online and for 15 minutes and they see these different portals and each portal they click on, recess, party, uh, movie, bowling. It's a little scenario, a situation, it's animated with voiceover and it has kids where two kids are playing and a third wants to join, and one kid wants to include and one kid wants to exclude that child. And so what happens is they get to a moment where a child says, well, we don't want you to join us. The action freezes, and the student makes a decision. They're asked, should they include or exclude this other child, used in child-friendly language. They push a button, they either include or exclude, then they watch the action unfold. And they see if they exclude them, the child feels really sad and lonely and wants to, you know, feels hurt. And if they include, they see they have a new friend and they all share a lot in common. But along that way, there's a lot of discussion and dialogue by the children in the scenario that reflects the kinds of things we've heard children say. So it gives them that information and the ways to think about it. And then immediately following it, they have this 30-minute discussion in the classroom where the teacher is leading them, say, what happened in the story? What did you think? Okay, tell me more. They talk about their personal experiences. Yeah, I was on the playground, and they said I couldn't play with them just because I'm from Mexico, but I want to play too. And then they wow. talk about it. And so they're sort of changing the norms by talking about it and so forth. Could this possibly be a way of being able to help reduce some of the social inequality that we're seeing today. That's exactly what we hope. (laughs) We're actually doing what's called a randomized controlled trial of our program right now in a very large school district where we've got, uh, you know, one set of classrooms that are the intervention where they're doing the program, one set of classrooms where they're the control and they're doing business as usual. And we have a pre-test and post-test measure to see is it reducing their stereotypes and prejudice and is it increasing their desire to have friends of different groups and backgrounds based on race, ethnicity, immigrant status, wealth status, and so forth. We're very hopeful we have positive results already, but the idea is exactly as you say, is to have them discuss these issues with each other, and that's the peer dynamic, the peer interaction, with the teacher, of course, leading them, because there's sometimes when children are saying things that are pretty raw, you know, they're saying, they didn't want to play with me because of my skin color. And then you have the other kids responding to that. The teacher responds, to that, well, what can we do if that doesn't happen again? What, how do we think about that? We call it direct contact and indirect contact. Social psychology has told us that contact with others 
under certain conditions can reduce prejudice. What are those conditions? When you have equal status, common goals, and friendships. So if you have friendships across these group categories, which we're hoping are being created in these discussions, that helps and goes a long, long way to reducing prejudice. Are you then worried, though, that you may see ideological detractors who believe that social inequality is part of the fabric and that if you create more equal environments, you really are harming society? What we would say is that there are different kinds of social inequalities. There's some social inequalities that we think are perfectly appropriate, and I think most people would agree are legitimate. There are social inequalities that we might think are legitimate, and there are social inequalities that are not legitimate. And what we're doing with children is trying to help them differentiate different types of social inequalities. You know, you're on a track team and you're a slow runner. Most people are going to say, you know, it's legitimate not to have a slow runner on the team. We're going to exclude them. It's not equal, but that's because you want the best track team you can get which is different from, say, there's a track team and you're not going to let somebody on it because of their religion. That's a different kind of reason. So it's the reasons behind these actions that are so important, and that's why we really do focus on children's reasons and their motivations for these decisions. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you appreciate how morality is developed And perhaps for those of you who are parents, have a little more understanding of those terrible twos and teenage rebel phases. Yeah, I didn't think so. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. And we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show as themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps us to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show him some sass. Sass.